contemporary use of the Great Replacement Theory attempts to create a false anatomy between the 20th century white supremacist views of the Democratic Party and the more modern designs using both legal and illegal immigration in pursuit of a desired political outcome. Not surprisingly, uh, the same party that created and spread the racist Great Replacement Theory attempt to label their modern opponents as racist despite the clear historical use of race as a tool to incense populations for political gain. So the Great Replacement Theory is separate and apart from its the modern false attribution. Uh, the way it's used today uh, is actually not the thing that it is. They are, are resurrecting a, a much older strategy and period uh, that really uh, was quite legitimate. So the theory can actually be uh, traced all the way back to where it seems so many wonderful things can be traced to, which is the antebellum era. Uh, during this time period, uh, the Democratic Party, uh, of course, made a still largely premised on slavery, but with the destruction of slavery, uh, their entire uh, kind of party purpose and platform, uh, they took their uh, kind of implicit white supremacist uh, blood purity kind of thing and elevated it to the forefront to replace slavery as the primary ideological driver. And part of this uh, was the routine use of propaganda that claimed that black suffrage or the uh, allowing now free blacks to vote uh, as well as entering into the normal labor market uh, would replace whites economically and politically. So this propaganda really intensified uh, throughout the Civil War, and then it was elevated uh, to the forefront of Democrat discussion uh, during the Reconstruction era. Uh, an end to slavery was labeled as the destruction of the white laboring class, uh, and black suffrage was framed as the destruction of white political representation. So these arguments were so persuasive, actually, uh, that it compelled many white Southerners to fight and die for slavery who had no actual stake in uh, its continuation and only stood to benefit, actually, from its abolition. And they fought and died uh, for the racist caste of Democrat society. Uh, so later, these same tenets uh, would be used to uphold Jim Crow laws and were often marketed to the public as protections for the white man from both black labor, and black political capital in some form or another. So that was the actual tenets of the real uh, Great Replacement Theory. It was used as a tool to uh, first to attempt to uphold slavery, and then with the uh, defeat of the Democratic Party in the Civil War, uh, that same kind of strategy was just applied to try and re-implement the racial caste system of the democratic states uh, through insisting that if blacks were to actually be, I don't know, able to enjoy all the freedoms of every other citizen and all of the obligations of every other citizen, uh, that that would be the same as uh, a diminishment or a dilution of uh, white labor and, of course, uh, white political power. So this, uh, this, this kind of ideological strategy actually catered very well to the Democratic Party 
and especially with the rise of uh, progressivism and Fabian socialism. So throughout the very early 20th century, of course, you had this influx of kind of a scientific worship. Uh, and, and a lot of progressive concepts really fit uh, into the paradigm that already existed through Calhounism. Uh, it wasn't hard to argue with an ideological premise or, or predisposition, if you will, towards white supremacy. The argument put forward by progressives that there were fit and unfit populations uh, fit very well into the existing kind of left Hegelian Marxist oppressor-oppressed dichotomy uh, that had been a hallmark of the Democratic Party, uh, at least since its formation. Of course, unlike slavery, uh, progressivism did permeate into the Republic, Republic Party, uh, though to a far lesser extent. Um, chief among them, of course, would be uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who was actually kind of very gently rejected from the Republican Party despite his star power. Uh, and, of course, naturally, he then founded the Progressive Party. Uh, of course, Hubert Hoover was another prominent Republican uh, that was a progressive. And, of course, his political legacy just demonstrates uh, how incompatible that is. So the existent framework for the fit-unfit uh, it just fell into the, uh, or rather replaced, uh, the old system of just pure anti-black racism. And we talked about that a little bit uh, earlier with some of the northern propaganda, where uh, Democrats also began to attack uh, immigrant immigra uh, populations, especially the Irish and the Italian and the Polish, and pretty much anyone that was Catholic, very strong anti-Catholic uh, predispositions there as well. And, of course, gave rise uh, this this type of anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant uh, prejudice, still premised largely on the actual Great Replacement Theory, uh, gave rise to the third wave uh, and really the most powerful and influential wave of the Ku Klux Klan, the national Ku Klux Klan, if you will. So... Roosevelt actually embodies a lot of the ideological unions, if you will, between uh, progressivism and kind of a the soft bigotry that kind of became the mainstay later on. So he actually uh, addressed something that he called racial suicide, and this was a phrase that he used to describe lower birth rates among native whites in America compared to immigrant populations. So for Roosevelt, the growth of unfit populations was, I quote, fundamentally, infinitely more important than any other question in this country. Uh, he also argued that it was the duty of those Americans of superior stock uh, to reproduce in order to maintain both racial integrity and superior numbers. So Roosevelt described blacks and non-foreign-born is far less intelligent uh, than the old immigrants, as well as less skilled, less literate, less progressive, and less assimilable. Now, Theodore Roosevelt wasn't inherently racist. He actually had great praise for blacks in many respects, uh, especially uh, the uh, treatment of blacks who served in the armies. Uh, but like earlier uh, kind of 
not quite racist, but prejudiced viewpoints. Uh, he believed that blacks should have all the same freedoms as whites, but that's not synonymous with assuming, uh, or rather discarding completely all concepts of racial superiority or inferiority. And in his defense further, though I am really no fan of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, that was the governing scientific, uh, or really pseudoscientific consensus at the time. And the primary mover in the academic and intellectual spheres and in politics, uh, eugenics was extraordinarily uh, prolific. In fact, it was probably the governing scientific uh, process until uh, the horrors of uh, the uh, German Worker Socialist Party or Nazi Party were revealed. So this ideology... Uh, shared by Theodore Roosevelt, uh, was pretty much identical to the same ideology uh, surrounding uh, concepts of blood purity, which were begun uh, by the Spanish initially against Jews. And then, of course, later they just kind of rebranded this into racial purity once everyone started using this imaginary word of race. And the two basically, uh, the two phrases essentially established a synonymy between each other. So... Perhaps the greatest example of this kind of uh, convergence is that uh, the exact same groups that under Democrat racism, slavery, Jim Crow, etc., those same groups uh, and the ones targeted for propaganda just conveniently happened to fall into the unfit category provided by uh, the pseudoscientific eugenics theory uh, that was encapsulated largely in progressivism. So it was also during this period, and this is perhaps uh, pretty uh, pertinent to the uh, contemporary discussion surrounding the recent overturn of uh, Roe v. Wade, but it was during this period that uh, abortion and contraceptive use and acceptance began to grow, and it wasn't an organic growth. It wasn't uh, kind of a natural social evolution scenario. Uh, these services were intended initially as tools to reduce the number of quote-unquote unfit births. And that was especially true for those uh, black Americans and for the undesirable uh, immigrant populations. So Margaret Sanger, of course, is infamous. Uh, she's praised in the hearts of some and condemned in the hearts of others. Uh, but she was the originator, essentially, of the con concept of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> unfit targeted marketing uh, for both contraceptives and for, and for uh, abortions as well. And uh, she coordinated with the likes of Webb Du Bois with uh, the Negro Project, as it was called, uh, to put abortion centers uh, into immigrants and especially black communities. Uh, of course, she did this with the uh, praise and adoration of elite intellectual blacks like Du Bois and also uh, many black clergymen uh, also coordinated with Sanger to use their pulpits in order to convince their populations that it's good to abort and not have babies uh, and for contraceptive use as well. And of course this was codified very quickly into the kind of culture uh, prevalent throughout the time of the uh, NAACP and its uh, kind of flagship publication, The Crisis, uh, published numerous articles that actually defined it uh, racist 
to not have more abortion clinics in black neighborhoods. Uh, so the messaging, apparently, the propaganda was very effective in that regard. <clears throat> now, this wasn't limited just to blacks. Uh, this, again, was limited to the same populations that were determined to be unfit, uh, the same populations that Theodore Roosevelt for, <laughs> referred to their uh, propagation as racial suicide. Uh, so the goal then, of course, naturally, was to reduce the number of births in these populations, therefore maintaining a balance of power politically and socially. And, of course, there is the obvious soft bigotry here, which is that these populations are too stupid uh, to manage their own uh, lives. Um, and on the note of Margaret Sanger, though, although she is largely demonized, um, she was pro-abortion, but she considered the use of an abortion to be the failure of other means of contraceptives, or rather of any means of contraceptives. Uh, she was actually disheartened when she visited the Soviet Union, for example, at the rate of abortions there, it was commonplace. It was that was their form of birth control, and that alarmed her. And actually, kind of terrorized her a little bit because, in her calculus, abortion should be safe and legal and rare. If I can still still a phrase that was quickly distorted, and not to be the go-to form of birth control. She was very much a contraceptives person, and of course. The number and variety of contraceptives available today is not even comparable to the good old days of the early 20th century. So a lot of these same uh, ideologies from both progressivism and Democratic Party and Calhounism, of course, these things were blending at this time. Uh, these ideas were very easily absorbed into multiple racist organizations like the Ku Klux Klan. A large part of their anti-black and especially anti-Catholic ideology, or rather we could just say more generally the anti-immigrant ideology, uh, was predicated largely on the invasion of inferiors through legal immigration, and that this was meant to dilute their economic and political power. These claims were essentially just transplanted from the antebellum and Reconstruction era, and they just struck out the word black and put in immigrant or Irish, but essentially it's the same premise, same ideology. And these ideas found themselves uh, concentrated, uh, much like Calhounism and slavery, into the Democratic Party. Uh, of course, Theodore Roosevelt... Uh, actually serves as evidence to support this point, uh, although he ran as a Republican initially. Uh, his ideas were so transformed throughout his years in the executive uh, that he was gently rejected uh, by the Republican Party and then uh, founded the Bull Moose Party, as it's generally called. Uh, but that wasn't actually its real name. It was filed as the Progressive Party. Bull Moose is just kind of a gentle way, I think, <laughs> through the lens of modern historical revisionism to try to kind of obfuscate that little bit of reality there. And then, of course, uh, you had Woodrow Wilson. Uh, he came to power uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, he, he was a devout Klan sympathizer. Uh, his father is actually a radical pro-slavery uh, slavery clergyman uh, who 
Uh, I detail one of his sermons in uh, the volume two reader, I believe it is, and I discuss his father very briefly uh, in kind of the larger context of pro-racism, pro-slavery clergymen at the time. So, but Wilson serves as a fantastic example of this convergence of kind of classic Democrat Calhounism, racism, white supremacism, uh, mixed with uh, kind of radical redistributionist ideologies and progressivism. Uh, He disliked blacks and he glorified uh, the Ku Klux Klan and the South and the the Confederacy more generally. And of course, this was, uh, this occurred all while he sought to just rapidly expand the power of the presidency and the power of an unelected bureaucratic administrative state, two hallmarks of progressivism. And, of course, there's perhaps no greater example of that than the Creel Commission, uh, the a, the first and only federal uh, control of information. Uh, so the First Amendment didn't exist anymore under Woodrow Wilson. So with the Great Depression, uh, the conflicts that were already kind of fairly common, uh, especially over uh, available jobs, exploded. And this uh, was inflamed further with the organized uh, labor, which is many, if not most, were actually uh, communist front organizations or were otherwise organized through uh, communist or socialist agitators. Not all, of course. But we needn't focus on exceptions to try to disprove the point whenever they just kind of justify the point. And it was not uh, not uncommon at all during this time period for white uh, union workers to beat and kill uh, black workers, uh, immigrant populations. And this was especially true during uh, strikes. So anytime a union uh, went on strike, there was this unwritten rule that even if you were starving and needed a job and your family needed something, uh, you were somehow morally obligated not to seek employment at that company or manufacturer or whatnot that now had a serious labor deficit because of the strike. So these people were called strike breakers. And blacks were notoriously targeted for abuse uh, by these striking unions. And this was covered very, very well uh, in George B. Kotkin's book, titled Strike Breakers, Evictions, and Violence. And he explains, and I quote, So damnatory was Jack London that he thought strikers had the moral right to kill those who took their jobs and broke their struggle. Like most trade unionists and radicals of his time, London assumed that strike breakers and violence went hand in hand. And of course, this Jack London uh, that Mr. Kotkin is referring to Uh, He was one of the leading figures of organized labor internationally. And he also just happened to be a leader of the Socialist Party. So the influx of radical redistributionist ideologies found an easy transition and really a a very comfortable home in the existing anti-black, anti-immigrant racism uh, throughout democratic elements. Uh, The Great Migration, of course, contributed immensely to this. Uh, You had the influx, not just of Southern blacks, but also Southern whites, and with them, their intergenerational social conditioning and propagandizing, uh, who all went to the North and fled their beautiful Southern Confederacy because uh, they needed jobs. Uh, So you have a massive influx of a white population that's already been kind of gaslit to react violently to blacks, uh, we can think, of course, the earlier 
uh, propaganda in the Democratic Party about uh, black freedom and working and suffrage equating to your personal oppression. So we just keep seeing this kind of left Hegelian Marxist influence. So organized labor unions, uh, they essentially just replaced the N-word with scab or strike breaker, and that instantly justified uh, their violence and, in many cases, murder of uh, blacks and any others who attempted the grievous crime of seeking employment. So in the South, you know, instead of lynching to protect the sensibilities of their southern white bells, which was kind of their hallmark, uh, these northern elements, they slaughtered and beat blacks because they were looking for employment. And by looking to uh, be hired and provide for their families, uh, socialists, labor unions, etc., uh, they phrased them as t- attempting to destroy white livelihood, to starve and kill their own families. So if we kind of see this ridiculous and absurd sensationalism here again where the conclusion does not match the premise, but the conclusion justifies the actions of those involved. Uh, That is the hallmark currently of American politics, it would seem. Uh, And it's not a new thing. It's just a continuation really from, uh, well, really from the antebellum era at the uh, very, very latest. And uh, the kind of hyperbole surrounding uh, so-called scabs or strike breakers uh, was expressed pretty clearly uh, again by Jack London. Uh, he considered the murder of any and all of those seeking employment to be fully du- justified as an act of self-defense because one simply has to pervert natural rights theory, twist, shape, and pervert it to fit what you want it to mean, naturally. So, as Jack London described, if a striking uh, union member just so happened to murder or assault a so-called scab, uh, it was justified because, and I quote, he tries to kill the man who was trying to kill him. And then he goes on to explain what this means, and I will quote here, When a striker kills with a brick the man who has taken his place, he has no sense of wrongdoing. In the deepest holds of his being, though he does not reason the impulse, he has an ethical sanction. He feels dimly that he has justification, just as the home-defending Boer felt, though more sharply, with each bullet he fired at the invading English. Behind every brick thrown by a striker is the selfish will to live of himself and the slightly altruistic will to live of his family. <clears throat> so, just a absurd glorification romanticization of killing or assaulting people who are competitors against you in the labor market. And this was not a viewpoint that was unique to Jack London, although it is illustrative to quote him since he was the central figurehead of organized labor and socialism at the time. Uh, But uh, the Labor World, which was a a socialist newspaper, uh, published a little, little snippet in 1917, which I'll read here presently. I quote, while the union stands for the only organized force enlisted in defense of the worker and striving for his advancement, it has a right to demand that all workers enlist, and if they will not, why then by the closed shop or the closed mine to conscript by force the necessity, the slacker, the sneak, the strike breaker, who fails to meet the issues of the hour, 
the demands of the time as honorable men should and will. So <laughs> there's just so many, so many. It's dizzying, actually. Uh, ideological convergences at this time period. You have Fabian socialism. You have kind of this uh, American form of progressivism, Marxism. And of course, all of that is just stirred in this already existing pot of of left Hegelian Calhounism that had been persisting uh, <laughs> since the earliest part of, of the 19th century. But one can see then that this type of rhetoric is what resulted uh, in Southern lynch mobs that were largely fueled by the same Democrat propaganda that had been used to uh, incite mobs earlier, uh, but was now kind of threaded into the primary ideological basis of redistributionist collectivist philosophies uh, surrounding organized labor. And this is not a surprising development considering the massive influx of uh, Democrats from the South into the North, uh, into large population centers, and which became the target of the Democratic Party to secure their political power base. And we see that today. Uh, states like Illinois are essentially ruled by a single county. Uh, you have uh, bastions of Democrat thought in uh, Austin, Texas, which is otherwise a red state. You see it in Bozeman, Montana, though to a lesser extent. And, of course, one uh, must not forget New York and Detroit uh, and their uh, fates, St. Louis, East St. Louis, etc. So this sensationalism, one must remember, was so effective, much like it is in the modern day, this sensationalization of, of consequences uh, that, you know, again, I hark on this statistic often, but I think it's very illuminating. Uh, 76% of Confederate soldiers owned no slaves, and yet they went to fight and die for causes that were utter fantasy. Uh, but that fantasy was a well-constructed social propaganda campaign that had persisted for decades. So many of these issues uh, were actually compounded uh, by the immigration strategies adopted by numerous Democrat administrations. Uh, Later, uh, merit-based systems would be uh, changed to allow uh, lower-skilled workers uh, in order to satisfy the cheap labor demands of uh, massive companies and corporations. Uh, of course, even then, it was still targeted primarily towards European countries to just lower the restrictions for entrance. <clears throat> so Democrats destroyed the low-skill uh, labor market, and they incensed their own populations by doing so and blaming on other people generally the, the immigrants themselves. Uh, so this immigration system was also predicated on Democrat loyalty. Uh, this was fulfilled by the mass migration of cheap labor uh, that would then join labor unions for employment and had to, or else they would either be beaten and killed by the, <laughs> by the union workers, uh, or they would just simply be rejected a job. Uh, so there really was a catch 22 here. And this, this uh, kind of si the system that developed then between unions, immigration, uh, and Democrat political power uh, is this formed during this time period. Uh, so many of these unions required Democrat loyalty. Uh, of course, one can't discuss the uh, political machines of political of the Democrat Party at this time without talking about T.J. Pendergast. Uh, his political machine uh, is probably one of the greatest examples. Uh, of this particular uh, pattern. Uh, 
Of course, T.J. Pendergast was so influential that uh, both Truman and FDR referred to him as Big Boss, and he was uh, the single-handedly the reason that Truman ever became politically significant. Uh, he essentially drug Truman through the trenches and then just pushed him up on stage to have him elected president. He also made sure that Kansas uh, said he voted for FDR, and what happened then was all those New Deal jobs and programs, uh, FDR actually somehow authorized Pendergast to allocate those jobs and resources. And of course, there was the understanding that should you be employed in one of these work projects, that you were expected to be a union man and, of course, to vote Democrat. So the actual original racist origins of the Great Replacement Theory for what it truly is, is owed to the Democratic Party and largely its anti-black, anti-immigration propaganda. Now, of course, this propaganda began to change shape with the rise of progressivism and the pseudoscientific uh, branch of eugenics. Uh, but the fiery rhetoric that had uh, first incensed Southern uh, non-slaveholding whites to violence uh, continued throughout organized labor uh, with the violence and murder of blacks and immigration populations uh, by so-called, air quotes, nativists, uh, pretty commonplace at this time. Uh, these unions were often organized by socialist and communist associations comprised uh, with a membership that was heavily Southern white. Uh, who had escaped along with blacks in the Great Migration uh, to the northern uh, metropolitan and manufacturing centers. So that brings us to the present uh, more directly. So like so many other elements of history, uh, contemporary mouthpieces attempt to falsely attribute the history of real great replacement theory that is owed to Democrat, socialist, communist, and they try to project that on their political adversaries. Uh, so this is not only false and dishonest, but it's a ploy to try and baptize themselves and absolve themselves of their own history. So what exactly is the concern then that's being expressed by some uh, in the modern day concerning legal and illegal immigration? Well, these are founded in political voting demographics, and they've been bragged and espoused by prominent Democrat leaders, publications, newspapers, and journalists for decades. Uh, so this is, uh, fortunately, this makes this a kind of a quantifiable issue. Uh, so these uh, kind of highlight, too, the, the ideological roots between the incendiary Democrat rhetoric and roots of the actual Great Replacement Theory. Uh, Democrat Party used sensationalist, impassioned, and fallacious arguments uh, for slavery, for segregation, for Jim Crow, and then for uh, anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric and stuff as well. And all of this was predicated, wrapped up into the actual and real Great Replacement Theory. But for at least since the 60s, uh, Democrats and leftists more generally have been uh, or have described immigration as a means of affecting a demographic political change and so therefore securing their own power through immigration. Uh, Ted Kennedy uh, promised that the uh, Naturalization Act of 1965 uh, would not flood our cities with immigrants 
And he also promised that it will not upset the ethnic mix of our society. It will not relax the standards of admission. It will not cause American workers to lose their jobs. Of course, these were promises made, and the exact opposite was actually occurred. Uh, well, skipping a few decades here, of course. Uh, so, while serving as the vice president under Barack Obama, uh, Joe Biden declared that a constant and unrelented stream of immigration and a dilution of white European descendants was a source of our strength. Uh, these comments were made in 2015, and they were described as a way to try and ameliorate violent extremism, uh, presumably by uh, those white European descendants uh, that Biden referred to in his statement. In 2004, uh, Roy Texiera, which I may or may not be pronouncing that last name correctly, uh, claimed that the key to Democrat Party political supremacy and dominance was to focus on, quote-unquote, economic and demographic changes, including the growth of minority communities and cultural shifts among college graduates. Of course, the surest way to focus on demographic changes is through the immigration system, again, both legal and illegal. So demographic changes are fueled by immigration, uh, and this is especially true for illegal immigration, uh, specifically because it's not traced or tracked as well. And it's also fueled in large part by the uh, natural reproduction of non-white uh, foreign-born populations. So the Democratic Party has actually predicated a lot of their success on the assumption that they can grow their power uh, through non-whites and non-natives. Uh, so this is really such, such a common theme throughout uh, the publications of the day. Uh, 2013 Politico, uh, they explained that massive amnesty uh, would produce an electoral bonanza for Democrats and cripple Republican prospects in many state states they now win easily. And of course, you can't have amnesty unless you have illegal immigrants in order to grant amnesty too. And so then the largest political return on investment for that amnesty uh, revolves around having as many illegals uh, currently in the country as you can. And so this is where the impetus for a permeable southern border uh, and various policies uh, are adopted that allow uh, the release or escape of apprehended uh, illegal border crossings into the interior of the country. So we can see, uh, or we can examine some numbers here that are going to really help highlight some of these details. So the influx of illegal immigration between 1980 and 2012 uh, essentially has remade uh, and continues to remake uh, the nation's electorate uh, in favor of the Democratic Party. And this was according to a study conducted by the Center for Immigration Studies. Uh, they found that legal immigration uh, accounted for 29.5 million uh, entrances in the United States between 1980 and 2012. So these and uh, similar conclusions uh, that this constant immigration is changing political demographics, uh, that this has been upheld by subsequent joint studies conducted by uh, the prestigious American Enterprise Institute, uh, the Center for American Progress, and the Brookings Institute. So this is not a one-off situation. This is an established norm, uh, something that is quantifiable. 
And further, all research indicates that all forms of immigration, legal and illegal, politically benefit the Democratic Party, uh, with a very notable exception, which we'll highlight here later on. All those populations that are most likely to vote for Democrats are currently preferred in both legal uh, and illegal immigration strategies. So one of the most uh, tragic but effective ways to highlight uh, the political purposes behind immigration, both again, both legal and illegal, uh, is found in Cuba. Uh, so the uh, Cuban refugees effectively are utterly rejected uh, from the United States. Uh, they're trying to flee their communist dictatorship, uh, but they are, I mean, there's, there's no qualms about it. Uh, Biden actually declared that all Cuban refugees were forbidden from placing foot on American soil. And while he's uh, telling the Cubans to go pound sand, of course, the southern border is wide open. We have catch and release, releasing to the interior, so on and so forth. So uh, a study in, uh, done by the Pew Research Center showed that uh, as of 2020, 65% of non-Cuban Hispanics lean Democrat, while only 32% lean Republican. Compared to the Cuban Cuban population, uh, 58% lean Republican and only 38% Democrat. So specific to the Cuban population, the Democrats stand to gain nothing politically but to lose political grounds. All other forms of Hispanic immigration, legal and illegal, they benefit from tremendously. So since non-Cuban Hispanic immigration doesn't strengthen their political power, they're rejected. As of 2018, half of all legal immigrants originated in Mexico or other Latin American countries. And, of course, 54% of all Latin American legal immigrants reliably vote Democrat, while only 11% pr predictably vote Republican. In 2012, 71% of Hispanic voters favored Obama, while Romney received only 27%. Among illegal immigrants, 54% identify with or lean Democrat, and only 20% do the same for Republicans. And of course, Cubans are the exception to this otherwise predictable reality. Uh, so this explains, then, the language of Alejandro Mayorkas, which is the Homeland Security uh, Secretary for uh, President Joe Biden. He said, and I quote, Allow me to be clear. If you take to the sea, you will not come to the United States. Uh, Mayorkas also explained that no Cubans would be allowed to enter the United States, period. They would be apprehended by the Coast Guard and forcibly returned to their home country. Anyone who was seeking asylum had to do so in a different state, and none were welcome to the United States. Now, it stands to reason, or stands to mention, rather, uh, that Mayorkas uh, actually fled uh, Cuba, along with his parents, uh, as a one-year-old child in 1960 to escape uh, the Cuban regime. Uh, so while he himself is a uh, direct uh, Cuban, who he and his family benefited tremendously from the uh, kindness of the American society and culture, uh, he seems content to uh, at least express uh, the views that reject others from experiencing the same. However, all southern refugees and immigrants, legal and illegal alike, are welcomed. Uh, but Cubans fleeing the dictatorship of the communist regime, not so much. 
And the White House has yet to offer any explanations or justifications for uh, their decision in this regard or their position. So allowing illegals to remain in the country for a number of years prior to amnesty also benefits the overall Democrat advantage that they enjoy politically. Uh, The longer a foreign-born person remains in the country, uh, the greater their divergence in political affiliation. So an illegal that is in the country for less than 10 years tends to favor the Democratic Party, 26% to 9% Republicans. So they're, you know, the Democrats have a 17-point advantage. However, by year 15, this spans to a 49 to 6. So by the 15th year, uh, Democrats have a 43-point advantage. And this pretty much remains unchanged thereafter. Uh, 20 more years, they gain one more point. Uh, to 44 points. Uh, Illegals or legals that are in the country, uh, 20 more years, they identify Democrat uh, 54% of the time and identify Republican only 10% of the time. And of course, this advantage only grows uh, because, uh, well, with total political participation, let's say. Uh, So only 38% of those in the country less than 15 years involve themselves with either party. But again, we get to that, that kind of that sweet 15-year mark, and 68% of all Hispanic immigrants, both legal or illegal, uh, decide to get politically active. And of course, that just feeds more power then into the uh, Democratic uh, Party political base. So the sweet spot is essentially a 15 years for amnesty. Uh, so that's where you get the cyclical pattern of, of illegal immigration, followed by amnesty, reluctance to reform immigration systems or to erect a border wall uh, with the hope that in another 15 or so many years you can have an additional wave of amnesty. And each one of these waves results in a Democratic Party political power increase. So Hispanics count for about 50% of all legal immigrants as well. Uh, So that means that 15 years after a Hispanic immigrant legally uh, enters the the nation, uh, 44% more of those will vote Democrat than will vote Republican. And of course, the same applies uh, to illegal immigrants. So to put the matter into context a little bit, out of 100 legal Hispanic immigrants uh, entered the United States today, uh, it is likely that in 15, they would already be majority Democrat. But in 15 years, 54 of them would vote Democrat, and only 10 of them would vote for Republican. So in fiscal year uh, 2021, for example, there were a total of 46.2 million foreign-born population in the United States. So if we use the calculus above, uh, we assume that 15 years, uh, that those who have been here for 15 years or more, account for about... I'm going to round it up and say 25 million Democrat votes. That same population would yield 4.6 million Republican votes. So it kind of gives you an idea of this massive disparity. Also, as of 2021, uh, approximately 15 and a half illegal aliens resided in the United States. And of course, there is no way to accurately know because they're illegal. If those illegals were to vote, uh, whether illegally or illegally, uh, that would amount to an additional... uh, 8.3 million Democrat votes compared to only 1.5 million Republican votes. And of course, this this only increases when one examines uh, natural reproduction. Uh, There were 297 
approximate 100, 297,000, excuse me, <laughs> approximate births uh, to illegal residents. And out of these 297,000 births, uh, that number is actually larger than the total number of births in any other state uh, except California and Texas. So every year, illegal residents as a group actually produce more children than any single state. So, and presumably, of course, uh, when those children are grown to adulthood and they vote, uh, 54% will vote Democrat, while only 10% will vote Republican. So again, we're directly benefiting the Democrat political base through all legal and illegal policies. And of course, the influx of both groups has been largely, uh, I guess, condoned and encouraged, and especially illegal immigration. And we can see that through several measures that have been adopted by the Biden administration specifically. Uh, the weakening and defunding of ICE. Uh, they reinstituted the catch and release, uh, which is kind of a ridiculous thing where you apprehend an illegal alien. And then you say, well, I caught you, but go ahead and get into the United States. Here's some stuff and promise to be in court uh, months from now. And of course they don't. But that's okay, because then the next amnesty, that's a secured, essentially, Democrat power base. Uh, of course, the most, obviously, they defunded the border wall. Uh, the, <clears throat> the weakening and defending of the, uh, what are called the MPP, or the Migrant Protection Protocols. Uh, and these were illegally halted by Biden. Uh, he was ordered by a, a court to resume, and he still has not. So there's that. And of course, as the name implies, the migrant protection protocols were intended to actually protect migrants. But they did slow down the process of pumping uh, illegals into the interior, so it was discarded. Uh, this, the Biden administration is also seen to the weakening of the asylum cooperative agreements. Uh, these allow migrants to uh, bypass multiple other countries where they could claim asylum in order to apply in the United States. So how this works is uh, under previous administrations, the rule was if you're an asylum seeker, when you're fleeing your home country, you must stop at the first country that offers you asylum. Uh, Mexico, for example, has their own asylum system. Uh, what this, what this uh, administration, the Biden administration, has done was tell these massive waves of uh, alleged asylum seekers, uh, that you can bypass as many countries as you wish in order to apply for asylum in the United States. And of course, the reason for that is pretty obvious, uh, considering the numbers that we've gone over. And of course, there's been multiple promises of amnesty, and even multiple attempts made uh, through Congress, though so far that's been defeated. Uh, but this encourages the influx of illegal immigrants whenever they're told and they see that there are current political machinations afoot for amnesty. It increases the impetus for getting into the country before that potential amnesty can occur. And perhaps most absurdly, uh, the Biden administration has expanded uh, policies that protect uh, criminal illegal aliens from deportation. Uh, so for whatever reason, Beyond simply accepting asylum refugees, uh, we openly accept criminals and refuse to deport them. 
So all of these measures have been taken unilaterally. Wow, that's a good one. Unilaterally uh, by a Democrat administration that directly benefits them politically. Immigration in both forms is the most powerful, effective driver of political demographics in the United States. That's just the simple reality. It's not about uh, the classical Democrat theory of uh, anti-black, anti-immigrant racism and prejudice about replacement. It's a very real, calculable thing. And of course, the advantage with illegal immigration is that there is no actual number that could be cited. You could do your best guess, but it's like trying to count what isn't there. So this is actually the pattern that's being referenced by critics today of immigration, both legal and illegal. It's not even predicated on race. Uh, that trophy belongs to the long history of the Democratic Party and its slave obsession turned eugenicist ambitions uh, to control the growth of unfit populations. Uh, but instead of addressing uh, the actual issue as it is presented by their political opponents, uh, contemporary Democrats... Uh, they resurrect the skeletons of their own history in an attempt to falsely project, project and attribute their prior ideological policies and protocols onto the legitimate concerns expressed today. Uh, and they resist any real conversation or debate uh, since all of these policies directly benefit and tremendously benefit uh, their pursuit of political dominance. This is identical in many respects to their obsession with slave expansionism. Uh, in the uh, antebellum era, uh, the whole point of uh, the Mexican-American War, uh, the attempted annexation of, of Cuba, and all these other instances, uh, the uh, DNC funding filibustering in Latin American countries, hoping to uh, absorb them into the slave-holding South, especially, uh, say, Nicaragua, uh, with the Walker regime there. It was all for the same purpose, which was through artificially expanding their political power. Not through organic change in Americans, but by just simply importing, essentially, uh, political uh, sycophants of sorts. And you can see another parallel in that these same uh, southern states, uh, they argued for the resumption of American involvement in the international slave trade in the hopes of bolstering their political power. And of course, that was done without any consideration to the benefit of the slave, much like today uh, with all of the violence and the terrible things that are built into this uh, drug smuggling, sex trafficking, uh, coyote uh, business surrounding our permeable southern border. Uh, that's not a consideration the Democratic Party really has or cares about. Uh, just like they throw children in cages, uh, though then they blame their political predecessors for the existence of those cages, even though they were originally erected under another Democrat regime. Uh, but although that was a hot-button issue uh, when their political opponents were in office, all of a sudden it's hush-hush. Uh, and again, it's because uh, ideological growth of power reigns supreme over any other interest, uh, including that of the nation as a whole. So in order to avoid having to confront these legitimate concerns and issues over immigration, they just project their own racist history onto the Republican Party or anyone else who would dare challenge them on it. 
Although, again, it stands to, to mention that while they tried to bludgeon uh, political adversaries with great replacement theory, they applaud it in the same hand. Uh, former Democratic Houston Mayor Anise Parker explained quite clearly uh, that Democrats, quote-unquote, have been waiting in Texas for a very long time for the Latino vote to come into its own and turn the tide. It's interesting to note that she does not use the word American, since we're all supposed to be Americans. She specifically refers to Latino, so this is a deep obsession with identity politics here. Uh, the left-wing publication, uh, Salon, uh, they acknowledged much the same in as, as early as 2008. Uh, they noted that, quote-unquote, Dems will win the White House every time if Democrats, again quoting, can count on Hispanics to deliver. And this was uh, given the context of uh, flipping Arizona and Texas through immigration, which is uh, what uh, Houston Mayor Anise Parker mentioned. And uh, it stands to mention as well that in 2020, uh, Arizona voted, although slimly, uh, for President Joe Biden, which was, of course, the, uh, the Democrat, Democrat nominee. Uh, in 2013, the leftist think tank, the Center for American Progress, uh, they discussed the very clear reality in their headline. Uh, it reads, Immigration is changing the political landscape in key states. Uh, and it also specifies that, quote-unquote, real immigration reform that contains a pathway to citizenship for our nation's 11 million undocumented immigrants is the only way to maintain electoral strength in the future. So while they acknowledge that their actual strategy is to weaponize immigration for political power. And they do this throughout their own think tanks and political speeches. Democrats still insist on labeling all, all opposition as some kind of racist throwback to their own history. But what we see in this uh, legitimate concern then uh, is not that... It's not a concern over really even immigration or especially not over race. That's such a, a trite thing to try to distill it into, although it's easy to argue. Uh, hence, the repeated use of race as a straw man uh, to distract and obfuscate. But it's because the Democratic Party <clears throat> cannot win uh, with existent American populations. So those Americans that already vote, <coughs> excuse me, are opposing the Democratic Party, or simply being uh, neutral, if you will. And so this failure, instead of being accurately represented then in the voting demographics of their individual states, uh, they are artificially changing the landscape to their benefit, not by appealing to American citizens, but simply by importing populations uh, that are already predisposed to support their positions. And that is the actual Great Replacement Theory, which is the hallmark of the Democratic Party, and the modern concerns over legal immigration and illegal immigration that most certainly do not fall under the same definitions of the Great Replacement the Theory pursued as an anti-black and anti-immigrant uh, talking point of the Democratic Party for large portions of the 19th and 20th centuries.
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share, and leave a five-star review. The Shane Caraway Show is available on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Red Circle, and wherever you listen to your podcast. Also, visit 1787project.com to learn more.